This podcast is produced by EnergeticCity.ca, your only local and independent news in Northeast BC. To support local news and this podcast, go to EnergeticCity.ca slash join to find out more. Welcome to the podcast Secrets of the North, a podcast about true crime in Northern BC. I'm your host, Emily Gallen. And I'm the co-host, Spencer Hall. This episode contains subject matter that may be disturbing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. All right, Spencer, you ready for episode two? Yes, I am absolutely ready for episode two. It is the same day as we record episode one. So you literally are here prepared. I am prepared. I feel like we're getting the hang of this. It might be the amount of wine I'm consuming, but I feel like we can only go up from here. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. Uh, Yeah, no, I love it because Emily has currently ingested probably about half a bottle of wine, and then I feel bad, so I'm going to start ingesting some wine. I mean, what? My boss is listening. We are just drinking water, sir. I mean, we're doing nothing. We're bored. I'm not bored, but I'm I'm not doing anything illicit. No. Not on a crime podcast. We wouldn't wouldn't dare. Wouldn't dare. Wouldn't dare. Okay, Spencer, why don't you take us to Crime Corner then, the first segment of our episode, which is where you tell us the local crime on the streets. You give us the deets of the streets, if you will. The deets of the streets? Mm-hmm. Okay. This one is going to be a little bit more recent than my last Crime Corner. Okay. Uh, this one was, well, the story was posted on July 8th of 2022. Mm, good, good, good month. Absolutely. Mm, and this H-O. is coming from... 14 John. Mm, love it. Yeah. Love to hear it. So, the headline, RCMP in northern BC arrest car's occupants after finding a baby deer in the back seat. I mean, right off, chef's kiss. Love it. Yeah. Keep going. I, you seem to be very fond. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. That's still good. It's still good. It's still good. Yeah, keep it's, going. It's good. So, the RCMP say they have arrested the occupants of a vehicle in Fort St. John after discovering a baby deer in the car. In a written statement, Mounties say they pulled over a vehicle during a traffic stop in the early morning hours of June 30th and found a month-old fawn in the back seat. So police said after arresting the occupants of the car for possessing wildlife, they searched it and found drugs. Mm, Surprise. Yeah, but didn't specify what kind or in what amount. I mean, obviously, when you find a baby deer in a car, I would assume that drugs were involved. One can only hope. And I don't know what kind of drugs because I don't know if I've tried those kinds of drugs. But you know what? Don't do that. No. Don't steal baby deers. Don't steal baby deers. Don't consume drugs and drive. It's the, I mean, really, I mean, I'm not, I know that we could be kind of controversial, but I think that those are some pretty good ones. Also, this sounds like a weird Bambi spinoff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 Tell me more. Under provincial law, it's actually illegal to possess a wild animal without a license or a permit Mm -hmm. granted by the province's chief veterinarian. And that applies to both dead and alive animals. Okay. Okay. Um, There's a distinction. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, I don't know why. Oh, I guess you could have them stuffed. I guess. So fawning season in BC is usually from May until early July. And that's when fawns kind of become more independent of their mothers. So maybe they just found a fawn and they're high on unspecified drugs and be like, we're going to rescue that fawn. They're like, oh, that fawn's trying to be independent. Let's, that, let's shut it down. Yeah, shut it down. So the SPCA says if you spot a fawn that you think is orphaned, it's best to actually just leave the animal alone because uh, it's normal for a doe to leave her offspring for an extended period of time to search for food. She's on that grind. She's trying mm. to find food. Like, it's hard out She's there. She's an independent woman. She is. And mm-hmm. the, they're not... You know, they'll be okay. Let her be free. Also, I think you're not supposed to touch them. 
I don't, well. Because I think once the, they smell different, the mom's like, mm. Or is that just cats? I don't know. No, there's no way. I just I always go know. through, just growing up on a farm and stuff like that. Like, my mom was always just like, just Grew leave. up on a farm? I did, a goat farm. What? Where? In Terrace. BC. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, growing up, my mom was always a very fierce advocate of, if you see a wild animal, it knows what it's doing. Okay, okay. She she knew her stuff. Yeah, well, sometimes. Okay. Uh, usually. <laughs> we'll get deeper into that next episode. Yeah, if she's listening, absolutely. My mom knew what she was talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. And your grandma. So if, yeah, well, my grandma's a saint. I love your uh, grandma. I also love my grandma. So if the animal appears injured and you see that a parent is dead, it recommends calling the, the conservation officer service mm-hmm. and they can go pick up the deer and, and transfer it to a wildlife rehabilitation center. And the organization also cautioned against rescuing an adult uh, an injured adult deer mm-hmm. as it's difficult to keep them in a captive setting and they're probably dangerous because they're large so again yeah. in that in that either call the police or or the conservation service in such a situation but in the uh, the case of this deer it was dehydrated and had a few digestive issues probably because it was hanging out with people that were probably high on drugs mm-hmm. uh, which i am um, also dehydrated and with have digestive issues when I hang out with people who are on drugs. Just kidding. But anyway, the RCMP in Fort St. John delivered the captive animal to the, you know, the COS or Conservation Officer Service. And then on July 1st, the provincial agency transferred it to a the Rimrock Wildlife Rehabilitation Center in Dawson Creek. And now it is thriving. They have a conservation something or other in Dawson Creek? A wildlife rehabilitation center, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, there wow. is a lot of wildlife in the center, so or in this area, so it does make sense that there would be. That's cool. And this story, didn't it get big, like CBC or something? Yeah, yeah. So, it. I mean, it's one of those stories where it's just like, oh, but also, huh. And they did have a really cute tagline and photo. That doesn't help. I mean, you know, doesn't hurt it. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a, a very cute deer kissing a... RCMP officer. And uh, I mean, that's just, it's very cute. Yeah. It's a very cute fawn. But yeah, so he was dehydrated, the fawn, and had digestive issues, but rehabbed well. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the crime corner. Good. So no fawns were hurt in the making of that crime or the making of this episode? No. He was dehydrated and had some digestive issues, but I think those cleared up pretty quickly. I mean, who doesn't have those two things going on right now in their life? Right. Probably also you because you've drank half a bottle of wine but no no judgment just an observation observation it it's 5 p.m sure is we've got this it's 5 p.m somewhere and here and here and now currently yes powerful conversations that deserve to be listened to before the peace is an energeticcity.ca podcast now available on all major platforms that highlights indigenous voices in northeast bc hosts jenna moreland and trey lapashinsky will take you on a journey with an indigenous lens on the history of the peace region find out more go to energeticcity.ca slash before the peace check out all of our podcasts go to energeticcity.ca slash podcasts Okay, well, let's get into it, Spencer. Let's take it down to something a little more sinister. And But first, let me slip into my radio voice. Oh, okay. okay. Yep. Something more comfortable, as a wise man once told me. <laughs> Would love to meet that guy someday. Mm, I know, me too. Today's episode is going to take us back to a chilly October day in 1983, when two German tourists were traveling across Canada where they met their untimely demise. In 1983, nestled in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains in northeastern BC, Canada, lay the district of Chetwynd. This land was home to the Beaver and Dunne people who called their home Little Prairie. 
At the time, the district was seeing their population level out as the Peace Canyon Dam near the Bennett Dam and the opening of the natural gas and sulfur plant were winding down. These large projects had attracted workers from all over who had their minds set on steady work and money. When the projects winded down, some left to go back to their prospective homes and some stayed on to become the part of a district's approximately 2,000 people. Okay, so... Essentially, it would be like what's going to happen here pretty quickly. So like with Site C right now, we're mm-hmm. seeing a large you know, population increase here because of the Site C project. But, you know, these have now finished up. They've wrapped up and now folks are off to the next thing. Mm-hmm. A lot of people came over from eastern Canada as well. Okay. Um, and basically the same thing. They're the transient community. Everybody's coming from all over for these big projects. Some leave at the end because they're just here to make money. And then some actually end up staying on. Mm-hmm. People came to the area not only for work, but to travel the Alaska Highway in northern BC. That was the case for Andrea Sherp and Bern Gork, who had their hearts set on an adventure in the Great White North. Unfortunately, I couldn't find too many personal details on the victims, which is tragic because ideally we would really like to focus on them. Mm-hmm. And I definitely did do some searching and I went on Ancestry and I couldn't oh, find anything. So Andrea Scherp was 22 years old and from Germany mm-hmm. and Bern Gork was 27 and an avid traveler. He had family that lived in Manitoba, Canada and had visited before. After completing university, Bern was gifted this trip for his graduation and he took along his fiance, Andrea. Oh, see, so it sounds like it, they were just going to do like a lovely little like backpacking trip and they were just like, we're going to go see Canada. Like he, and he's seen it already before. It seems like the idyllic dream to me. And I did a lot of traveling and traveled across the world, like in high school and after high school. And it's always those first trips that you do with like, it's like someone you love or someone you're like dating at the time and you go away and it's just so meaningful and impactful. Oh, oh man. I love that. I okay. love it for them. Tell but me a little bit more about. I don't trip. love it for them. I don't. I don't love this instance, but I, I, I know what you're talking about. I mean, I yeah. haven't. I went from school to Fort St. John, and I've been working since then. I mean, I t- I've taken trips like back home and, and stuff, and I did one this summer, so that's lovely. It was it was a nice time. Okay, we gotta expand your horizons. Yes, we We're really do. do I need to get a passport first. Mm. Yeah, so I should do that. Anyway, so tell me a little bit more about their trip. All right. So in August of 1983, the couple departed for Canada and made their way from Manitoba to Prince Rupert, and then on to Alaska. They planned on traveling south to Vancouver next to grab a flight back home to Germany, which was booked for October 6. They had planned on hitchhiking the whole way and living out of their backpacks. All right, Spencer, take me back to geography class, which I I did get an A in. Okay. Oddly enough, do I know geography? No, I know no. nothing about it. Does that make sense for a route? Well, he had family in Manitoba, so that makes sense. And then... Prince Rupert, yeah, you can take that. So there's okay. just ferries that you would take, and then if you're backpacking, it makes sense. You just walk onto the ferry, and it's like it's still cheap now. So I ba- imagine back in 1983, they paid like mm-hmm. four bucks or whatever. Don't quote me on that. I don't know what the price was, but it's a it's a very financially efficient way of traveling and hitchhiking. I mean, I don't know hitchhiking for me. I was always told not to, but I grew up in Terrace, which is along the Highway of Tears, which I know that I'm you know not exactly the main concern when it comes to that. But my mom was always like freaking out because we would walk on the highway and stuff like that mm-hmm. and she told us not to and i was like i know what i'm doing did not know what i was doing but you know anyway yeah so that makes sense for a uh, for a route and it sounds like a very lovely vacation slash trip mm-hmm. but andrea and burn never made it back to the airport mm. in fact they never made it home mm. 
The couple, according to the Fifth Estate, were last seen on October 3rd, hitchhiking westbound of Dawson Creek, B.C., which is mile zero on the Alaska Highway. Other sources note the couple were picked up in Chetwin, B.C. by a driver in a 1960s Chevrolet pickup, which would make that the last time they were seen. Just three days after they were last seen, local resident Mino Toes made a grisly discovery on an isolated road approximately 32 kilometers south of Chetwind. On October 6, the bodies of Andrea and Byrne were found deceased, with apparent gun wounds. An autopsy later would confirm that the evidence is consistent with a handgun. On the day they should have been flying home, the police were still in the process of identifying their bodies, and it would take approximately 10 days to identify the pair using forensic dentistry and a communication with Interpol. Right. And it's 1983. So that mm-hmm. communication with Interpol was fully a fax machine. Mm-hmm. When I was watching the documentary by the Fifth Estate, the mother, no, the stepmother actually of Byrne was speaking and she said that they didn't even know that they, you know, obviously they didn't even know that they'd been missing for a long time. And it was pretty traumatic when they got the phone call. I would imagine so. Yeah. Yes. I also want to point out that, you know, this is 1983 and someone of a town of 2,000 people is driving a 1960s Chevrolet pickup. So I would think that, I mean, I don't know what the, you know, what people were driving back then. I don't know if that was very, you know, common. Like a noticeable, like having a 20-year-old vehicle noticeable. Yeah. So I don't know. But that's interesting to me because I would think that not a lot of people would own, I mean, especially, well, now they wouldn't, but I don't know how many people would have owned a 1960s pickup. Although, if you think you're in a farming community, true pickups probably were the mode of transportation. Oh yeah, but I don't know how like how common it was, or if you know because they've just yeah. if you think about it, they've just had a big economic boom. You would think yeah. like we're seeing now, you would think that you would see a lot of like 1980s pickups, or at least that's what that's my thought. So I, I would I don't know how common it was back at the crime scene, according to CBC News. Sergeant Cunningham finds a pair of bloody jeans that were discarded at Mount Lemaray Disposal Site on Highway 97, just south of where the bodies were found. Future forensics would confirm that these pants had the blood of the victims and possibly three other people's DNA. That's a lot of DNA for a pair of pants. That's a lot of DNA for a pair of pants, but remember that they were also hitchhiking, and so they could have picked up a lot of other trans... Actually, no, not transfer DNA in this point because we're talking in the 80s. But there's a possibility of picking other people's DNA up along the way. Okay. And who's Sergeant Cunningham? He is listed in CBC News as maybe the lead investigator. Okay. Yeah. He's with the RCMP. Yes. Okay. What Sergeant Cunningham didn't find was the victim's possessions. Hmm. Witnesses reported to the police that they had seen the couple with their camping gear on October 3rd. So was theft a possible motive? Among those items stolen were German passport number D3900872, green low backpack with a hole in the bottom from an Edelweiss flower patch, a daily diary written in German, and an oval brooch engraved with leaves that was approximately one centimeters in diameter. Okay. The list of property belongings we're going to post on to our Instagram after the show as well, and social media. Right. So... They're thinking that maybe theft was a possible motive. Also, Edelweiss flower patch always reminds me of the sound of music, but also yes. uh, there's a, it's a really beautiful flower. If I post a picture of that on our Instagram. Yeah, we could. It reminds me not of Germany, but of Switzerland. 
Austria. Austria. Where did they do the sound of music? That's Austria. Yeah. Okay. Then that's exactly what that reminds me of. I've been there. (laughs) While the police were starting their investigation, little did they know Andrea's traveler's checks were being continually cashed south of Chetwin to buy gasoline at various gas stations. The same 1960s Chevy truck that was last seen with the couple was spotted in Prince George, McLeese Lake, Lackalahash, and 100 Mile House. Thankfully, those who spotted the truck and driver painted a picture of the suspect for the local RCMP. They described the driver as being a male, around 40, Caucasian, straight, collared-length brown hair. He was approximately 5'9 and 190 pounds, and he walked with slumped shoulders. The suspect wore a long-sleeved green dark shirt, jeans, and dark pants, a dark hunter-style cap with fold-up ear flaps and a vest. Wow, that's a that's quite a picture. It's it's a getup. Like to me, I'm and actually no, I have seen the sketch, so it it obviously paints the exact picture of like the description. <laughs> but he he's wearing like those. You know what's Fudd and Elmer, Elmer Fudd? Elmer, do you think he looks like Elmer Fudd? He's a bit like Elmer Fudd, but 5'9 and 190 pounds with slim shoulders. And he has hair. And he has hair and a dark green shirt okay. and dark pants. Basically, but what he, they share in common is a, a hat. cap. Yeah. yeah, a hat. He's got that Elmer Fudd aesthetic. Yeah, okay. that's what we got. All right. According to the Fifth Estate, the road they were found on is something you would probably only know about if you were a local or had been at some point. Mm-hmm. And over 900 tips would come in over the next few years. But surprisingly, the tip that led to a suspect came from the other side of Canada, Grand Falls, Newfoundland. Hmm. This tip came from a Madonna Kelly of Grand Falls, Newfoundland, who had actually been living in Chetwind at the time of the murder, but had moved back to Grand Falls shortly after. Not only was she a resident, but she was friends and co-workers with the man who claimed to have killed the German tourists. This man's name is Andy Rose. Andy was one of the 13 siblings born October 16, 1948 in Grand Falls, Newfoundland, and was living in Chetwind from 1982 to 1983. He came to Chetwind much like others for the promise of consistent work, and he lived with his brother at a local motel. He didn't stay long in Chetwind and actually left a few weeks after the murders took place and headed to Courtney, B.C. to find work. Isn't that odd, Spencer, that he... He went to Courtney after the murders took place, and you would kind of take that same route if you were going from Chetwin to Vancouver Island, wouldn't you, as the traveler's checks were cashed? Yeah, so you would go to Prince George and then Lackalahash and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if I really had thought of well, I mean, I hadn't thought about it because I only learned about it a very <laughs> short time ago. But yeah, that is interesting. So yeah, that, that, is, that is odd. Well, who is Andy Rose? to Madonna Kelly, and what exactly did he tell her? Andy and Madonna may have met in July or August, while they were both working on a local sod farm. After Madonna returned to Newfoundland, she told her roommate about Andy, unaware that her roommate was actually an undercover police informant. What? Yes. It wasn't until April of 1989, when Madonna was speaking with the police informant, her roommate, that this information came to light. Like a prayer. Uh. Like a prayer. That's such a good song. That's a good one. Madonna tells a police informant that early on October 3rd or 4th, Andy came to her trailer covered in blood saying that he had just killed two people, two German hikers. He said he blew their heads off and ditched them. This wasn't until April of 1989. So just, just to be clear for, for timeline. the listeners, timeline, she told the police informant 
in April of 18, 1989. Yes. Okay. So the murders happened in 83, and then this – she told the police informant about the confession in 1989. Okay. Here's my thing, and it's one thing that I, I find happens a lot in you know true crime stories, is that these people come up and say – hey, this person came to me covered in blood and said they killed somebody. <laughs> my first, maybe I'm a narc. I don't know. But if that ever happened, like if, if my partner came home, like I, I love my partner, but if my partner came home and was covered in mm-hmm. blood and was like, hey, I just killed two tourists or whatever, I'm sorry, I'm calling the police. Like I just, I then fear for my own safety, but also I'm like, well, you've killed two other people. Like who's to say? Well, the fact about this matter, I think we're going to get into it a little bit, but she could have been complacent, kind of compliant at the time, mm-hmm. and then still she had gotten away. Like She left Chetwind right afterwards, right? Right. And had moved back to Newfoundland. She took that oval brooch and she ran. Yeah, so she did have time. Well, hopefully not. I hope not. No, sorry. Yeah. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to accuse Madonna of anything. No, uh, no, 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 no. She was never. She non-spoiler alert. Madonna is not a suspect and was never listed as a suspect. Don't DM us or sue us. That yeah, please don't. But yeah. also, do you ever think about saying that? Like, I'm I'm always aghast by people like everyday people that are named Madonna. I'm always entertained when people say aghast. That's fair. What about flabbergasted? Oh, I, that's also a great word. What about titillated or Twitter baited? I don't know if I've ever heard Twitter baited. That sounds like something that is. If you're Twitter baited, you're in Twitter... love. Oh, mm-hmm. like Bandy. Okay, so you're Bandy, not... Bandy, you're not... Bandy, Bambi, 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 like the deer. Okay, yeah, Bambi. It's... You know, in the movie Bambi, they were Twitter baited. Oh, I just thought that just sounds like you've been doom scrolling, and then you were found. You found a thing that that was set as a trap for you. But I also. Need to get off the internet. I apparently need to get on the internet. I don't know what doom scrolling is. Doom scrolling? Oh, that's mm. so. It's one thing that came kind of into the light, like during COVID or like the pandemic, where it's like doom scrolling, where you're like, oh my gosh, the world is falling apart. You just keep scrolling down your your social media feed. That's doom scrolling. Oh, that's like the the story because it it's just sad. It, well, it's upsetting for yes. sure. So Madonna, she confided in this roommate who was the police informant and. She said that when Andy Rose came to her, his eyes were bulging and he looked paranoid. Does Madonna know that her roommate is a police informant at this point? I I don't think so. Okay. No, no, no. She's on record saying that he threatened, as an Andy Rose, threatened to kill her and her son if she told anyone. Okay. He said, if you tell anyone, I will kill you and Michael. I will kill him first and you after. Okay, well, that would explain why she didn't go to the police initially. Yes, exactly. Um, But also, that's... That's some full psychopath behavior when you're like, I've already planned the order in which I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to kill your son first. Madonna said as soon as she had the money, she left for Newfoundland, but did not call the police. This led to Madonna giving the police a statement in relation to the murders of the German tourists on August 17, 1989. Hmm. The 5th Estate has a recording of the phone call between Madonna and Andy. He totally denies that he had told her anything and even questions how could he have shot someone when he couldn't even afford to get a gun. Okay, so this is what bugs me about that. It's not, I would never kill somebody, two innocent hikers, Mm -hmm. or I'd never do something like that. It was like, it's all logistics where it's like, well, I didn't even have a gun. Like, that's just, I... He could have been a logical thinker. Okay, maybe. You know, just the benefit of the doubt here. For sure. And I did listen to this recording and it... But yeah, he did. He said those exact same things. He goes, what did he say? Something like 
he can't even afford to do his laundry, so how can he afford to get a gun? Y- yeah, that's weird. I mean, maybe maybe logical thinker, like you pointed out, but I I just don't. That's an odd way to say that I'm not guilty. Yeah, and I mean, we don't have time to get into it. Maybe on an off episode, but about confessions, mm-hmm. false confessions, coerced confessions, like the list goes on. Uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, Andy Rose did confess to her at least allegedly allegedly yes yeah she he allegedly confessed to madonna kelly who then did report it to the police informant like six years later yes yeah okay okay the information that she gave police was compelling but not a slam dunk they needed more if they were going to try and convict so on september 7th madonna went undercover to try and obtain a secretly recorded conversation She was to call Andy at his work at Sundance, Manitoba, and participate in a recording that Andy was unaware of. Andy denied being involved in the murder of the two German tourists. In fact, the only time Andy spent with law enforcement was one night in a drunk tank. And when she questioned him, he stated, No way, Madonna. I'm no effing murderer. I may be a lush, but I ain't no effing murderer. I think you can just say fucking. Fucking. No way, Madonna. I'm not a fucking murderer. I may be a lush, but I ain't no fucking murderer. There you go. They're nice. Later on, Andy would tell a story of a nosebleed that resulted from a drunken fight and headed to Madonna's that night. Dating, he may have been joking offhandedly, but it was only the booze talking. Nonetheless, he was arrested in Manitoba in September 1989. Okay. Here's my question. Ask me. I don't know if you have seen pictures of the jeans, but mm, how much blood? Yeah, I, I've seen sp- some splatter photo, but it could have been a. Do you think it could have been a nosebleed? Well, I mean, the photo itself could have just been a reenactment. Oh, okay. I don't know if it was the actual photo. See, that's odd. I mean, it, you could have made it. Maybe he had a very dark sense of humor and knew, like, saw the, this case in the headlines and was like, oh, I, yeah. I don't know. That's it wouldn't weird. have even been in the headlines. Because it hadn't happened yet. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's weird. So why, and I mean, unless this woman did have some sort of reason to say so or have a vendetta yeah, they, against like, it, like but we're going to get to it. Well, I did on one one article that I read, it said that they were dating. Okay, so but maybe. But on all the others, it had said friend. Okay, well, I've been there. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, you know, we don't talk about that. But I'm also, yeah. The interesting thing is, yeah, it, it would be odd to say I killed two German tourists, and then it just happened to be that like two German tourists were killed. Yeah, there's a coincidence, and there's there's you murdered them, murdering. Yeah. yeah. Also, yeah, I don't know. I feel like for a nosebleed, because the pants are down there, the nose is up here. The nosebleed would happen on your shirt, I would think. I don't know. I don't know. I think that, yeah, it would definitely, I think it would get on the pants. You think so? Yeah, and noses do bleed a lot. And eventually I'm actually going to cover a case that involves a nosebleed as well. Ooh, interesting. Stay tuned for that hot nose action. Yes, stay tuned for it. Okay. Well, Uh, regardless though, Spencer, Andy's going to spend the next 12 years in and out of court and prison. Okay. So in 1991, he was convicted of two counts of second-degree murder in relation to Andrew and Byrne, which he appealed successfully in 1992. Okay. This is where it gets kind of confusing and wild. He was then reconvicted in 1994 during the next court proceedings. And while he was incarcerated, new evidence came to light. 
Not only did someone else come forward with a confession, but the DNA found on the bloody jeans near the scene of the crime was tested. Right, because it was now at that point where they could DNA test. Yes. The, okay. The test came back and Andy Rose's DNA was not found on the jeans. Andy was let out on parole while he awaited another trial. And this time the trial was set for 2001. Okay. During this time, the RCMP underwent a sting operation trying to get him to confess yet again. Okay. Interesting. Because if his DNA was not found at all on the jeans, like DNA is pretty easy to get on things. And especially like if you're wearing mm-hmm. the jeans, like your DNA would be on them. And if it's a pair of jeans, it's obviously not the ones that Andrew and Byrne were wearing. Right. Right. It, it's obviously a third party, the perpetrator. And I believe they had already said they had Andrew and Byrne's DNA on them and right. then possibly three others. So these are the killer's pants. Like RCMP says these, these, this yes. isn't like Byrne's pants or. Because why else would you dis- discard them, right? Good point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. According to authors Keenan and Brockman in their Canadian crime novel, Mr. Big. Part of Andy's parole meant that he had to check in to police headquarters in Thompson, Manitoba. This is where the sting operation known as Mr. Big all began. An undercover agent was waiting for Andy outside the police station and tasked with befriending him. This officer was posing as a contact to a known wealthy criminal. Over the next few months, Andy and the undercover cop would engage in staged crimes such as drug trafficking to gain Andy's trust. After gaining Andy's trust and providing him with ways to make money, albeit criminal ways, the next step was to bring him to meet the head of their criminal organization to have Andy be vetted. So this is actually kind of, I find interesting, Spencer. Okay. I actually met a guy on a plane one time who participated in an undercover Mr. Big operation. Okay, so these are like, it's not just a one-off. So like the, the RCMP uses this exact scenario in, in multiple arrests and yeah. convictions. It definitely was mentioned in some of my criminology courses in the university. And so when I sat next to this guy on a flight one time, I think we're heading to Kelowna, and we're talking about who you are, who's your job, you're just doing your little introductions. And he tells me what he does, and it's something with... Rogue construction. I I don't know. And I'm like, meh. And I was like, well, what'd you do before that? Because he seems older, more like retirement age. And he goes, oh, I used to be an undercover cop for one of the first undercover projects in Vancouver, BC, with the Hells Angels. What? So I look at him and I say... Why would you not lead with that? Oh. I mean, I guess because you did undercover. He's hiding the lead. Yeah. Yeah. I look at him and I say, I'm really hoping you weren't expecting to sleep. Because I'm going to be talking to you the entire flight. Yeah. And we did. And it was amazing. And I have his phone number somewhere. Actually, for this very reason, because I said, one day I'm going to have a podcast. (laughs) And he's like, here's my phone number. Take it. And you can interview me. And I didn't do that. But he's like, well, I can't give. No. You know what? I'm not going to say anything about him. Because he was an undercover with the Hells Angels. Yeah. And you, you don't want to go spreading your name around. No. And so we're talking about like investigative techniques. And there's one called, I think, the Reese or the Reese, Reese method. And why are they all named after candy bars? Quick question. I, I feel like they're named after people's names. I mean, okay. Would they Possibly. all, they all happen to have candy bar names. Well, I love candy bars. They, I do too. Good. And he tells me this story and it, it's basically the same thing that we're kind of about to get into. 
And he says, it's back in the day and it's all about in the strippers clubs and in the hotel rooms, there's the cops next door, literally like listening in and the Mr. Big operation. So they're taking them to meet the next big person. Typically, they will gain the suspect's trust and have them commit minor crimes that are staged and then offer a full-time gig to the suspect within their crime organization. The catch is that they will need to meet the main boss, a.k.a. Mr. Big. Now, Mr. Big is also going to be an undercover agent, and he will pose questions about the suspect's past that they will need to help him with and clear up in order to get them to work for him. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Mr. Big might say that he knows about the murder you committed in the past and that he needs to know where the body is in order to cover it up so that you don't draw any attention to the organization at any point. Hmm. When Andy is brought to meet his Mr. Big, the exchange becomes heated. I would like to note that this is a reenactment done. We don't have the addition, like the, the original audio. So what you're about to hear is a reenactment. And that Wait. being said, take it away. What you're about to hear contains approximately 132 swear words. Yeah, take it away. There's a, there are a lot of swears. Yeah, that's a lie. That's a fucking lie right off the bat. Because everything I fucking found out about it, the evidence is all fucking there that you did it. They convicted you twice on the fucking thing. They can convict you a third time. Listen, I don't give a fuck. I do not lie to you. Even after all that, the police persisted and supplied Andy with copious amounts of liquor until finally that night Andy would eventually confess, according to Keenan and Brockman, stating, Well, we'll go with that I did it, okay? So I'm going to say that if at any point somebody supplied me with copious amounts of liquor and then kept swearing and yelling at me, I would probably just tell them whatever they want so they would stop swearing and yelling at me. I think when you're supplied with copious amounts of liquor, who knows what else, mm -hmm. you do a lot of things that you wouldn't normally do. Yeah. So, I mean, I, per I personally, I don't really think that this would hold up. Although you can't use that in a defense if you commit a crime. Drunk. Well, yeah, no, I mean, there's a difference between confessing to a crime when you're drunk and then doing a crime when you're drunk. Yeah, that's true. The court seemed to agree that his confessions were either persuaded, false, or coerced. And in 2001, the court found Andy Rose not guilty. The confession was deemed to be elicited under duress. And according to Burke 2009, the court found evidence of relentless pressure, abusive language, threats, inducements, and robust challenges in psychological manipulations. The court also noted that the DNA found on the genes was linked to at least five people, including the victims, and none of them matched Andy. Interesting. After spending almost 10 years in prison, Andy reintegrated into society, and according to Keenan and Brockman, he even reestablished a relationship with his son, but spends most of his time alone. I mean, if I spent 10 years in prison by myself for a crime that I didn't commit, I would also, I mean, I don't know if I would be able to, like, you know, reintegrate but, into society successfully. Yeah, so did not commit versus just also your DNA doesn't match and you're not convicted. Right, okay, so yeah. we're not exactly... I still don't, I don't know what I think. I still, yeah, okay, well, spoiler alert, that's where we're at. Spoiler alert, here we are. It isn't every day that you have someone confess to a murder, and then they later deny but to have two people confess? Unlikely. 
In this case, another suspect was identified in 1997 when a confession was brought forward. Vance Hill was a construction worker who immigrated to Canada from California in 1967 and settled in Prince George, which is only three hours from Chetwind. Although his wife and children did move back to the States after their marriage ended, Vance stayed on. Vance Hill was noted to be an alcoholic and often got himself into some minor altercations with the law. After one such altercation, Vance decided to move back to California and it is there where he confessed to the murders of Andrea and Byrne to his ex-wife in 1984. Shortly after this confession, he died by suicide on July 28, 1985. The suicide letter left behind did not mention a confession of any murder. Okay, so it's just his ex-wife that's saying it at this mm -hmm. point. Okay. Exactly. The estranged wife told her nephew the story of the confession some 12 years later in 1997. The nephew, having some good sense, contacted the police. According to Wikipedia, Vance's wife retold Vance's story to her nephew as such. And I quote, The couple asked if he could take them. He agreed. He began to harass the woman. When her friend protested, he stopped the pickup. They got out and began to argue. He reached into the pickup, took out the rifle, and shot him. The woman screamed and screamed and did not want to shut up. He said he also had to kill her. Okay, let's stop there. That's dark. Yeah, no, that's really dark. And was that got dark. That it got, got dark, that but got also dark. she sat on that for 12 years. Oh, that's dark. Yeah, like she just like, I don't know what she was doing that one night in 1997, but that's that's dark. Yes. But also, so then in, under under her, it, like, according to the wife, she was saying that... The estranged wife. The estranged wife that... They split up, and I don't know what happened there, but whatever. She, I can so, only assume. I Exactly. So ex-husband is driving these two kids, because that's essentially what they are. They were kids. They're driving. He starts being really inappropriate towards the, the female companion. Mm -hmm. And then... Is this story, yeah. Yeah, and then Byrne is like, I ain't having any of that. So yeah. then he stands up for her, and then he takes the rifle out shoots burn and then of course andrea is reacting as anyone would mm -hmm. when you when your mm -hmm. friend gets shot and then so then keep allegedly murdered andrea as well mm -hmm. okay according to the prince george citizen in 1989 corporal don fraser said that there is evidence to suggest the person or persons responsible had an intimate knowledge of the area so was vance the perpetrator he had knowledge of the area and was living there at the time of the murders. But thanks to DNA technology at the time of this confession, the police were able to rule out Vince as his DNA was not found on the bloody jeans left near the scene of the crime. Oh, Spencer. Okay. So there's two people who have confessed that their DNA was not found on those jeans. Like, how is that? I don't know. I, I really wonder if they're going to use familial DNA to track down this case because it just seems like such a, a perfect perfect case to do that I, yeah but i mean they were able to rule him out through that oh oh you meant just generally they're going to take familial dna that mm -hmm, might mm -hmm. be good because that's what they did in the golden state killer right yes yeah. the golden state killer and then some other ones okay and they use the genealogy mm -hmm. to track down family members of whoever is related to the person of the dna have they done that in Canada yet, or is it only in the States? I don't know. Okay. 
But if anybody knows, feel free to hit us up. I'll yeah. have to do more research on that because I know that I, I know that it yeah. has happened through the states, but I, Canada might not. But yeah, it's really interesting because you have two confessions, and both people who have confessed. I mean, both people who have confessed have apparently it's either an ex-lover or an ex-wife or an mm-hmm. ex-friend. So indirectly confessed. Yes. At this point, not saying that either are innocent or guilty. I don't. I don't. I really. I genuinely. De- I can't tell. And we don't even have the time to get into it, but the research and studies that they've done on confessions and false confessions mm-hmm. is extremely interesting of the reasons why we do it or how people believe in these false confessions. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if those are applicable to this case, but... I don't know. It's interesting. I know with like roses, it seems like, because I know I've watched a few, I think there's like a Netflix documentary about fake confessions mm-hmm. or false confessions. Okay. Sorry. But I know that like a lot of the time, it's usually when the police like sit you in there for like six hours and then you just start, like they start bending your reality because essentially you've like, you know, you're in there for six hours while they're hammering you on this case and yeah. essentially you just want them to stop. Kind of like the big sting operation mm-hmm. where they're, they're hounding him and then yeah. they're applying him with drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Well, I don't know about like that in the case of the Netflix documentary. But yeah, definitely they were playing him with Mr. Rose with, with some, some drugs. So it, yeah, interesting. Andrea would have been 62 years old today. Maybe she would have had grandchildren running around. And Byrne would have been 66. Their families still don't have concrete answers as to what happened to their loved ones. If anyone out there knows something related to this crime, please contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. Well... What do you think? I think it could have been more two or more people. Well, didn't Mr. Rose live with his brother in the hotel? Yeah, and he at one point had also lived with Madonna Kelly. With the brother? Mates. I don't know if it was the brother and Madonna Kelly, but he so maybe had lived at multiple places. Mm-hmm. It could be why their DNA wasn't found on the pants. Maybe. It could be they have absolutely nothing to do with it. Yep, Mr. Rose. I mean, yeah. he's, been, he's been through the ringer when it comes to the the criminal system. So, I mean, I'm not. I don't know if he's yeah. guilty or innocent. It's really hard to tell. But judging from his, you know, cases that have gone through, you know, the Canadian criminal justice system, he's not. Well, I think of most notably the really famous Netflix documentary, um, "Making a Murder." Yes, and there's the gentleman on there who is. Mentally incapable of of understanding the consequences of the crimes. That's another one of those like confessions, though, because watching mm-hmm. making a murderer when they made I think his name's Brendan Dassey. Yes, yes. Uh, confess. I didn't feel comfortable like watching no. those. It made me very uncomfortable. No. He was in one breath, like you know, committing to the crime, and in the same breath asking if he was going to be home in time to watch a. WW wrestling wrestling match. Yeah, well also yeah. the fact that he was a minor and his parents weren't around. Okay. I mean I mean th- we're gonna get things. We don't need to we don't need to pick one thing that would upset we don't us about need that. To pick one uh, thing. If you guys don't know what we're talking about, please watch that because it's and, and all those other things. Well, I mean for me it's it's difficult. I really I it's one of those stories where I just I can't I can't tell. But uh, yeah There's but, two or more options. There's many options, mm-hmm. I think, yeah. I, it's also difficult because it was such a time of, you know, well, the transient nature, again, yeah. and we see this in our cases, is when we have this influx 
of population and people coming to this area of the Peace Region and then leaving again. Mm -hmm. So it's almost... I wonder part of the aspect is it's not somebody's permanent home. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they're more drawn to be like, oh, yeah, I can do this because then I'm going to leave here. And mm -hmm. then, yeah, hmm, maybe. It's like the broken window theory in psychology where they list New York City as their their subway systems were a complete disaster mm -hmm. and they're covered in graffiti. And they said if one window is broken, it makes people think that they can break other windows. Oh. So they fixed everything and fixed all the trains, made everything pretty. And anytime any graffiti was added, they immediately would cover it up. Mm -hmm. And it gave people this sense of pride in their own community. And they were less likely to uh, graffiti and vandalize it. Interesting. You're interesting. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, if you also think that we're interesting, you can head over to our Instagram for a list of sources and items stolen from the victims in this case. Mm -hmm. You can visit our show notes. We'll be putting that in the link in our Instagram bio, Secrets of the North underscore, underscore podcast, at uh, obviously on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Obviously. Who naturally. are we? We are Secrets of the North. We absolutely are. But I'm Spencer Hall. I'm Emily Gallen. And this is Chetwin's Double Murder. Again, the family still don't have answers, and I think that's the most important mm -hmm. part to highlight in this. There is a Fifth Estate documentary about it that you should absolutely watch, which will also probably be in our show notes. Yes. And if anyone does know anything out there related to this crime, please contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. Absolutely. The family has been waiting long enough for the answers. And if, you know, anyone is able to, to give them something, I'm sure they would much appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Well, until next time, thank you for tuning in to Secrets of the North. Emily, what are we going to be talking about next episode? Can you give us a little taste? Next episode, we are going to go back to a crime that's not that so much far in the past. So a fairly recent one. It's a fairly recent one that happened in Taylor, BC, and it feels just very personal and tragic actually so that's depressing and that's what we'll do next week okay well i want to say that i'm looking forward to it not looking forward you know what we'll talk about it we'll talk uh, about it and uh, we'll bring it to you in bite-sized forms because that's what we do here on secrets of the north give you your boost of or sorry your dose of uh, true crime in a shot glass even though it's sad it's so sad a it's, sad little shot glass chat, yep of that, information that was my nickname in college Sad? Sad little shot glass. Sad little shot glass. That's not true. Okay, well, Mine anyway. My scooter. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, we'll get into that. Cool. I'll ask you about that next next episode because it sounds like we'll need something to, to lighten the mood. Let's do it. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this EnergeticCity.ca podcast. EnergeticCity.ca is your only local and independent news in Northeast BC. To help keep us independent and to support this podcast, go to EnergeticCity.ca slash join.